Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. Welcome back. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe. And we are so glad you're joining us for another great episode in our Say Yes series brought to you by AIM. And it's great to be back with you guys in September. Rebecca, this has been a fun last week. Anytime you put a book out into the world, it's pretty fun to see the response. And it's been pretty overwhelming. Yes. Um, Thank you, guys. Thanks for all your comments, your posts, your shares, your likes, just all the things you did to grab this devotional. It's my first one, and it was really fun to get it out there. And it is a beautiful cover. And you guys are posting all these so fun pictures of it. So thank you. And we are so excited to do this as a community. We're going to go through 52 days together. Yeah. It's a surrendered yes, 52 devotionals to let go and live free. And really what we want to do is make this fall a fall where we all have this opportunity to really go deeper into this message of surrender. And what does it mean to let go of some things in a environment where you don't have control anyway? So why are we trying to hold on so much? (laughs) Like, let's let go and experience the freedom that God wants to have for us. And in just a few moments, we're going to get into a great conversation with John Mark Comer about some of these ideas and how the world is changing so quickly, and letting go and living free is the only way to do this. Right. Absolutely. It's it's a posture. It's a posture of submission. It's a surrender. God, you know what I can't see. Can I trust you? And that's really the leading question of this devotional journey is, do you trust me? <laughs> God leans into his daughters and his sons and says, do you trust me? Do you trust that the plans and purposes I have for you are good, even if they're scary and unknown and a little bit um, requires some level of risk? Yeah. But that's what, he, that's what he's done in our lives. And there's always strength on the other side of that. Yes, that it's a surrendered yes. You know, it doesn't have to be like, it could be a cautious yes, that's okay. But it's still an open-handed willingness to go, yes, God, I want the journey you have for me over the journey that I want for me, because I know it leads to life and peace. And that's what, I, that's what we really do long for. Yeah. And we want you to not do this in isolation. I know devotionals are one of those things you tend to think of reading alone in the morning, and and that's great. Do that. But we've created a way over these next 52 days, as you're doing that, to gather once a week with a friend, maybe over coffee, maybe at your home, maybe on the porch, um, or a group where you're already in a group. You're in a conversation with a group. Maybe it's a text thread group that you're in. But the point is creating space to come together and talk about what you're learning about surrender, what you're learning about letting go and living free. We really do believe that this transformation happens one small step at a time, and it is best done in community. Because you can have these thoughts in your head, but when you embody them with other people, and each devotion has a reflection question at the end, and so you can share that with somebody else, not just with God, but, you know, put skin on it and share it with somebody yeah. else because that truly leads to the transformation that we're hoping for. Yeah, and some of you, it might just be with your spouse. It might be with your children that you want to have this conversation. And so when you go to RebeccaLyons.com slash live free, you're going to get that free guide. You can simply download it. You can do it on your phone, save it, and go back to it. It's a very simple conversation once a week, a discussion you have, an action that you can take, and then the opportunity to practice this every week. Because our goal is by the time we get to Thanksgiving, you know, you fast forward about 52 days, this is going to go fast. But by the time we get through this fall, that our hearts are in a different place, our minds are in a good place, a place of peace, a place of rest, a place of trust, a place of confidence in someone outside of ourselves that does carry us and care for us. 
Yeah. So you're going to love today's conversation with John Mark. Uh, We are jumping in the deep end with him with his new book and also talking a little bit about just the hurry sickness that we've all experienced as a culture leading into quarantine, leading into now walking back into life and how do we keep those practices and some of those disciplines we learned when things were slower. And if you don't know John Mark Comer, he comes from Portland, Oregon, pastor of Bridgetown Church over 18 years. He's just stepped aside from pastoring and is launching a a whole new work in Portland, connected there with that community. But we're going to go deeper into the current crisis of mental health, what that's looking like in people's lives, how the enemy plays a role in that. And we're going to kind of peel back several layers as John Mark helps us discover how we can see what's really true about what God wants for us and how we're meant to live. There are still places around the world where the name of Jesus has never been heard. That's why Operation Christmas Child is sending the gospel through simple shoebox gifts to the ends of the earth. The greatest journey follow-up discipleship program is teaching millions of children to put their faith in Christ and how to share that faith with others. Even in the hardest to reach places of the world, churches are being planted and communities are being transformed. Your shoebox gifts full of school supplies, toys, and hygiene items will open the door for children everywhere to encounter the love of Christ for the very first time. Mark it on your calendar. National Collection Week is November 15th through 22nd. To learn more about this global evangelism and discipleship movement or to build a shoebox online, visit SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. John Mark Comer, welcome to Rhythms for Life. Happy to be with you. We are so, so grateful to have you here. So a couple years ago, our books came out at the same time, and I loved uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, especially because you were talking about hurry sickness and the epidemic of that, and all of us have to take inventory. I remember you you know, acknowledging your own, and as I was reading that, my book on rhythms of Mm -hmm. rest, restore, connect, create had just come out, and I was like, you can live these things, but we always preach what we must learn, and then we have to be reminded constantly. And how do you see hurry sickness impacting just a few months later after those books emerged, all of a sudden a global pandemic sets in and everyone's home in quarantine. What did that look like from your observation? Well, first off, I'm really happy that you and I could conspire together to like unleash a global pandemic to get everybody (laughs) to slow down long enough to read our books at just the right time. It was the right time to apply it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the conspiracy theory that is true. No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I think it was, what, six months after our books came out that the pandemic kind of shut everybody down. And, you know, the gift of a disruption like that is it will kind of shake you out of the status quo. And a lot of us live in the kind of status quo of hurry sickness at this pace of life that is not sustainable and is neurotic. It creates Mm -hmm. all sorts of mental health issues, all sorts of spiritual life issues. But, it, you know, it's, it's manageable. And that's the great danger, things that are manageable but are actually slowly suffocating your soul. And so the gift of the pandemic, which was a horrific experience for all, it was you know at least small t trauma, but there was a hidden gift in it in that it was, a, it was disruptive enough that I think a lot of people kind of put their life on the table. And I don't know how many, I don't have good stats, but so many people that have moved, you know, you're here in Nashville, I mean, half the world has moved here during the pandemic, you know? <laughs> right. 
and uh, people who have moved, who have changed jobs, who have, you know, done massive kind of life re-architectures, and then all sorts of other people that have made other major decisions that maybe are not so good, you know, right. marriages that have broken down, relationships that have split, families that have been divided over politics or conspiracy theories or who knows what. So I do think the gift of that was, you know, it gave everybody a chance to reevaluate. I think what a lot of people realized when they slowed down was just like the frog in the water thing. They realized just how toxic their lifestyle was. And so I heard a lot of people say about six months into the pandemic, I'm never going back. Now the question is, was that just aspirational or is it real? And I'm still pretty skeptical. Most of my I'm not a I'm not a cynical person, but I kind of think most people will get sucked right back in. Yeah, I love the aspirational piece, and we were there. We planted 14 massive box beds for our garden, and we'd never done any of that. Oh before, my gosh! So well done. We were all in. I'm not saying we. I've always know. wanted a garden. I've never <laughs> lived somewhere that had like the yard and the right sunlight combo. I've you always the, wanted the- one. From the garden to the city guy? He's yeah. never had a garden. <laughs> I know who's never gardened in his it life. It's very aspirational. He's going to get there, guys. Eventually. It's in my destiny. I just feel it. <laughs> no, we even built chicken condos. So we had like yeah, no 14 desire. That's, that's a level. I'm not there. <laughs> they're not condos. They're coops. Uh, but they're you, cute. You call we painted them, them black. We made them modern. We had one for the mamas and one for the babies so that they didn't peck each other to death. So we acted like we knew what we were doing. and <laughs> But it was very much aspirational. And I remember um, by the end of that season, and going like, well, that was fun, you know, and here we are back a year later as things started to reemerge. And I just remember going, how do we not go back to the life the way we left it? Yeah. And it's, it's the churn is so intense. Mm-hmm. Like no matter how strong-willed and good-willed you are it, to not return, the yes. churn is like a tractor beam. It just sucks you back yes. into this vortex. Yes. So what are some of the things that Take it, like you said. I'm still sure, not sure if it's aspirational. What are some of the guardrails? Um, I call rhythms guardrails, but yes. like, what are some of the things that keep you from veering right back where you were? Well, I think you're on the right track. I think we're on the we're speaking the same language as far as rhythms or guardrails, or I would use the language of rule of life. Aspiration is not enough. Like that's the great myth. I think of. Western culture in general and the Western church is that like give people the right information and then inspire them to go do it and then go do it, everybody, go slow down. And it just doesn't work. I mean, willpower and kind of an emotionally motivated sermon or book or podcast will not change your life. Things have to be habituated into your body. They actually, yeah. you have to actually find habits and, you know, rhythms or guardrails or structures or rule of life, whatever you want to call it. I'm happy to, to, to sidebar and rule of life if you want. You have to build a life architecture that is actually conducive to living in alignment with your deepest desires. And so that however you do that, it has to be in writing at some level. There has to be a, a level of accountability to it because it's so against the tide of culture. Otherwise, you know, just the pace of the world and the digital age will just suck you in. Talk a little bit about rule of life and describe where that phrase comes from. And for yes. those who've never heard that language, what that looks like. Yeah. So I, this is a deep passion of mine. I think it's the future of the church. I, that's lots of conversations there. But rule of life is ancient language, not modern. So uh, a lot of you know younger Christians wouldn't even know what that word means, which is totally fine. From the ancient church, rule, the Latin word there was regula. And so it's singular, not rules for life. It's not like a list of do's and don'ts. So you can do it that way, like don't you know check your phone before 8.30 or don't, whatever. 
but it's a it's a rule and it was the word used for a trellis in a vineyard. And basically, ancient Christians picked up Jesus' metaphor from John 15 of abiding in the vine, which is Jesus' teaching on spiritual formation, how we grow to become the kind of people who bear the fruit of you know, love, joy, peace, patience. Paul in Galatians in that passage is basically interpreting Jesus in John 15 and his teaching. And the ancient Christians said, well, if you think about a winery, for a vine to bear the maximum amount of fruit, it has to have a trellis. It has to have a support structure to kind of undergird it, hold it up, point it in the right direction, keep it away from disease, wild animals, predators. And in the same way, for us to abide in Jesus and kind of index our spiritual growth in the right direction, we have to have some kind of a support structure for our life. So, of course, St. Benedict wrote the most famous one in the 6th century, but there's been all sorts of rules of life down through history. And what I like to tell people is, even if you've never heard that language, you already have a rule of life. You already have like a set of habits and practices. You likely have a morning routine. If you wake up in the morning and you, you know, put on the TV and you watch the news while you're making yourself a bagel, that's a, that's a rule of life. That's a habit. And a habit is all, everything we do does something to us. So it's forming you, could be good, could be bad, could be neutral, but it's making you into a certain kind of person. And, uh, you know, there's when kind of talk radio and news, TV news originally was like really getting popular news stations like Fox News or whatever used to have their icon right in the bottom of the TV, but they found that so many people would keep the TV on all day long that it would burn into the actual TV set. (laughs) And so they had to like change it to where the TV thing moved around. (laughs) Wow. Because there were people that would literally wake up in the morning, put on Fox News and not, or put on MSNBC and not turn it off till night. You just think about the form, the formative effect of that. What is that doing to you? Yeah. Yeah. Now we can chuckle at that, but you look at the amount of hours that the average millennials on Instagram every day. And you're like, what in the world is that doing to form you mm-hmm. in anxiety and body image issues and comparison and ideologies from the left, from the right? So it's about creating some kind of a rule of life, a habit structure, a relational rhythm kind of based life that's in writing at some level yeah. that has a community to hold you to it that allows you to actually live in alignment with your deepest desires. So it's not all just like self-discipline stuff. It's self-discipline that is actually trying to get you. Because most of us don't live in alignment with our deepest right. desires. We Like if you were to articulate, what do you want most out of your life? We'd name two or three things. And then if we look at our lifestyle, we'd be like, that is not how you get to that right. end goal. Right. You know, We just get sucked into so many other things. Yeah, it reminds me of Parker Palmer and Let Your Life Speak. At the very mm. beginning, he quotes the, the poem, Ask Me. And yes. essentially, he's like, is the river my life? And the way I interpreted that was is the life I lead the life that longs to live in me. Mm-hmm. This idea of, mm. of, of well this said. conflicted, yes. you know, dualism. Mm-hmm. And I love that you're talking about a trellis as a support structure because you're basically saying, am I supporting my life to lead the life that longs to live in me? Or am I putting those those stakes in the ground that are going to give it air and give yes. it room. We we do know about trellises. <laughs> Back to the garden. like because <laughs> Oh, you did it. Really? We trellised several um, things that do much better. So our tomatoes, our cucumbers. Um, I'm so our, jealous right now. Pole beans. It's not even funny. Like, so everything that was in this in the sky or that trellised and went up had less pests or anything, and they had the most fruit. So yep, we, we yep. live. And another thing you just said, I'm getting so excited, but another thing you just said about the vine and the branches – just this trellis is an embodiment, right? It's not a theory. It's not like a sermon that you took notes on. It's right. not a book that you read. While those shape, no, um, you live it. Yes. You actually have to live it and experience it in your physical body 
to see the transformation yeah. and to come to know it. And that's how I learned with healing from panic disorder, anxiety, and depression was that journey, the healing began when it went from theory yes. to practice. To your body. Mm-hmm. The physical, the physiological like response to yes. shame and feeling that consuming yes. you and shutting you down or sending you out of the room or things like that. Um, Kurt Thompson has a book coming out right now on desire, but his last one was mm. The Soul of Shame. This yeah, one's his the soul work of desire. is such a help. And it's like, yes, when we physically feel it in our yes. bones, we either feel despair uh, devastation, or we feel life in yeah. walking. You know, just walking and all those practices. I could go on and on, but no. I, know. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, this is what I think is missing from Western culture as a whole. You know, because there's so much of um, Cartesian thinking. You know, Rene Descartes, who said, "I think, therefore I am." And so the West is very much built around this idea that you're kind of a brain on legs or whatever, and it's just not true. It's not what the Scripture teaches. It's not what ancient Christian tradition teaches. We're these whole people. You know. We're embodied creatures. And so I, I, it was John Orberg who said to me a while ago, he said, following Jesus is kind of like golf. I don't play golf, but he's an avid golfer. And he said, it doesn't take very long to get into your mind what you need to do. He said, the whole, the lifelong journey is learning to get what's in your mind into your muscle memory. Yeah, you know, So you good. can read a couple books, you can watch some YouTube videos, you can figure out the rules, you can even see the perfect technique of the swing or whatever. But really, the game, the lifestyle is about how do you get it from your mind into your muscle memory, where it just naturally comes out of you without you even thinking. That's basically what discipleship to Jesus is. Yeah, that's good. Gabe could speak to that, right, yeah, babe? I do like golf. So. And he's gotten... <laughs> that's, he, I tried to he, like golf, but he's it, it, played I was forever, unsuccessful. He's played forever his whole life, but he had his best round the other day. And it, he doesn't even play a ton. But it is for you a muscle memory. Like he's, you said yeah, the other things day, are clicking, you finally. said it's just clicking. <laughs> I'm just like not even, not even really thinking about it at this point. Friends, I'm incredibly excited to partner with Agape International Missions as I launch a surrendered yes into the world. The purpose of this book is to serve as a guide to let go and live free. I truly believe that through the freedom we have been given by our creator, we're also given a great responsibility to serve humanity. And AIM is doing just that. They are on the ground rescuing girls from trafficking and empowering them to be free, saying yes to the hard work of helping broken lives find healing and restoration. So far, 1,300 people have been rescued through their work. How incredible is that? Because freedom is a gift that's meant to be shared, I want to invite you to join the work too. And guess what? The first 100 listeners to join The Village, AIM's passionate community of monthly donors right now, will get a signed copy of my new devotional, A Surrendered Yes. So pause this podcast right now and go to aimfree.org slash say yes. Sign up to become a part of the village and take up this fun, limited time offer while supplies last. I really believe in us saying yes and doing something tangible with the gift of freedom we've been given. And this is the perfect opportunity to do just that. Again, you can go to aimfree.org slash say yes and sign up today. Let's say yes to freedom and let's share that freedom with others. Now, John Mark, I mean, I love how you've pastored a church for 18 years at Bridgetown. 
and just been so faithful in that work in Portland, one of our yeah. favorite cities, by the way, right, yes. Rebecca? Yes. Remember when we went yes. on, in college? When we were dating, we went to the Rose Parade. Or, really? Yeah. 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 We went to Multnomah Falls. A I skydive think. there. Yes, wow. you did. Yeah. You, I don't yeah. even know that was a thing. Yeah, anyway. I remember like one of the early cues was in That's Portland. That's right, I, 2011. Was, like, my, it was a we fantastic We had protesters experience. at that one. You really? Because we were um, the interviewing the- from Ground Zero Moss. Remember the Ground Zero Moss? No way. We were interviewing him about I didn't, I do just his perspective but anyway here's here's my point <laughs> well, you live in a city a i did drama. not protest you. <laughs> you you live in a city that's looked at as one of the most post-christian yes in anti-christian the world. Yeah. in the world right so so finally that's here in america yeah. and you've been pastoring there so faithfully and i'm curious as you look at just over the last 18 years and you've seen kind of this mental health epidemic start to yes. erupt within not yes. just your city but all over oh, the, world. the world, yeah. But I think you've probably you probably saw it coming sooner than a lot of people, and now everybody's talking about it. It's like we're aware of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, what is what do you believe is going on there? I mean, I know it's so many things you can't yeah. sum it up in two minutes. But but even I, let's take it from a spiritual perspective as a pastor. What are you seeing happen here to our minds? Like it feels like we're losing our minds. Yeah, I mean, I I think you have to approach that with a lot of humility you know, the human person and the human mind are extraordinarily complex. And so I don't want to say, well, it's just because people have rejected God and therefore everybody's, you know, neurotic now. So I think there are multiple layers to it. But for sure, I think, you know, if you want to take it from that perspective, that is a significant contributing factor. Human beings cannot live without meaning. Yeah. Like the human brain is literally, I mean, neurobiologists tell us it's wired to make meaning. Every time we walk into a room, every time we watch a movie, every time we're searching to connect the dots and give some kind of meaning purpose to our life. And the secular narrative whether it's the right version of secularism or in my city, the left version of secularism, is Darwinian materialism. It's you are an animal, you are another species who just has a larger prefrontal cortex. You got here by accident through, a you know, the multiverse or some nonsense, you know, trying to make sense of the fine-tuning yeah. of the universe. And there's no purpose to life. It's just survival of the fittest. And now that the earth is overpopulated. Even sexuality yeah. is just like do whatever you want with it. So just so so the meaning of life becomes basically happiness mm-hmm. because there is no meaning of life. So just you want to feel good in the moment. So let's what what, what will make you happy? What will make you happy in the moment? And the the neuroticism that creates. There's like a short term relief where people who abandon whether it's God or faith or some kind of a a, a worldview feel this like almost honeymoon period. And you see this when a lot of people deconstruct their faith right now, where all of a sudden they're like free from what they perceive as the oppression of meaning and purpose. And they can just kind of feel good and do whatever they want and sleep with whoever they want, say whatever they want, do whatever the heck they want. And then what happens is that begins to to turn on them Mm. and becomes a prison that they become entrapped in and a, a form of massive anxiety because then you create a world where you can't really be silent with yourself. Yeah. So I don't think that's the factor behind the rise of mental illness, but I think it's a significant one that we see across our city. I think it's the rise of ideology, which in my city is massive, is because people are attempting to replace religion because people can't live without meaning. Yeah. So right. social justice becomes that for many people, which is so illogical because you don't get from Darwin we evolved from monkeys by the strong eating the weak to therefore black lives matter. Like that's not a logical progression of thought. You get there from 
Genesis 1. All yeah. human beings are created in the image of God. That I was so shaped by Viktor Frankl and mm. all his work with logotherapy. And yes. Freud says we're made for pleasure and Adler power. Um, but Frankel always said meaning, yes. and he was a, he- a Jewish man who yes. borrowed from his Hebrew roots. And uh, one of my favorite quotes by him is that life is never made unbearable by circumstances, mm. but by lack of meaning and purpose. Yes. And one of his goals in, in uh, Vienna was to have a year go by as a, sci- a leading psychiatrist before the, um, the Holocaust to have no suicides, and he was successful because it really was back mm. to the, that the root of anxiety yes. is unfulfilled responsibility, mm. that we know we're made for something and we're yes. not leaning into it, and there's a gap there. And that shaped me a lot when I was walking this healing journey back a decade ago because mm. I found that that in that, in that goal of going, okay, what is meaning? And he defined it by love, yes. bravery, like love, loving fully, meaningful work, and bravery and suffering, which I mm. thought was really remarkable. Yes, his stuff on suffering is such a Yes, gift. and I think that's partly what I'm finding now in like a suffering society. It's like we don't know what to do with suffering. It, yeah. There's It's no nobility in yeah. that. You just kind of want to escape it, and then therefore you have more suffering. Yeah, more. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Walk, uh, what is the title, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, or Google that, um, something close to that, has a great overview. Most of the book actually isn't like a biblical theology of suffering. Most of it's an overview of like the major worldviews and how they deal with suffering. So the Islamic worldview, the Eastern worldview, the Christian worldview, the animist worldview. And he basically makes a very compelling case that the worst worldview there is of all of the options to deal with suffering is a secular worldview. Because in a secular worldview, there is no meaning of life. So most people default to happiness, hedonism, pleasure becomes the reason that you live. And in that paradigm, suffering is at best an obstacle to what the meaning of your life is because it's holding you back from being happy. Or at worst, if it's suffering that doesn't like happen for a time and then go away, if it's permanent, if it's you know a chronic disease or if it's some kind of relational breakdown that will never get fixed, then it's a permanent obstacle to the meaning of life. Whereas in the Christian worldview, suffering, as much as we hate it, it, and even though it comes from the pit of hell, is the primary crucible by which we are formed and forged yeah. into people of love, who are people who are free from the need for life to go a certain way to mm. be happy. A mentor That's recently good. said to me, good circumstances are not an adequate foundation upon which to build your life. Oh, that's good. And, you know, but <laughs> you so can't true. get there from a secular worldview. I recently was reading Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book in the late mm-hmm. 60s called The God Who Is There. And he predicts everything we're walking through right now because he saw where this was going, where we were going to abandon God. Now man becomes God. We we take on this weight of the world that we, we were, were never, never meant to bear. created for. And we wonder why we're anxious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think sometimes these conversations are helpful. They're, they, they don't feel very practical because we're right in the middle of it. Right. But man, when you step back and go, hey, people have been thinking this could be the outcome 50 years ago of yeah. where we were going. It does give you hope that there is a better way to live. And maybe part of what will happen in this generation is we'll recover that. We'll recover what it means to live free as human beings, as God designed yeah. them. Your latest work, I'm so excited about because uh, when I got this book a few months ago in the mail, yeah. I was able to read it, Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace. You really, I feel like you peeled back the layers again not just 50 years ago, you went back like 2,000 years ago, and you said, look, 
there's a different game going on in our world that most of us don't recognize, and therefore, because we can't see it, we can't discern it, yeah. we get caught up in the muddle of trying to fix these problems, but we don't recognize there's an enemy behind it. Yeah. And I wonder if you'd just share with us a little bit about why you wrote this book, why it was so important to address lies right now. Yeah. I, there's a lot that could be said about that, but to tie it into kind of what we're talking about, you know, I've spent my whole life on the West Coast, born and raised in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, then moved to Portland. So all I've ever known is following Jesus, come from a great Christian family in very secular, very post-Christian and very progressive cultural contexts. And uh, it's been very hard in all honesty, but it's also been really good for me because, you know, if you think about the secularization curve, Portland is maybe 20 years ahead of the South of Middle America and 20 years behind, you know, England or something like that. So it's a good kind of place to be right now as far as where America is concerned. And I think if you're in somewhere like Franklin here, if you're in, you know, a a part of the country that's a little bit more sane, then progressivism and secularism can kind of have this like shiny romantic allure to it. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, I could just be happy. I could sleep with whoever I wanted to do. I could just be non-judgmental. I could do whatever. I could kind of just be whatever. But when you're actually there, anybody that doesn't live in like a coastal city should go spend some time in Portland or LA or San Francisco or Brooklyn and 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 go past the just like cool coffee and great food because we do have the best coffee and food. <laughs> and, uh, I agree. And the cool, you know, street art or whatever and just prayer walk those cities and just ask God to give you his eyes mm. and see beyond the kind of Instagram cool factor to what's actually happening. And it's actually very depressing. Mm. And um, and I say that with love for my city, but it is not, it is not <laughs> the best argument against secular progressivism is secular progressive cities. Like, you know what <laughs> right. I mean? Like beyond right. coffee. The fruit of that. If, yeah, the fruit of it. Just go look beyond that and look at the soul. Look at the society. Look at how lonely people are. Look at how there's no children. There's no family. There's no old people. People seem anxious and angry. People are on there addicted to their phones. And, you know, there's just a deep kind of darkness settling over a lot of these places. And uh, I think it's just important to see where this road goes and understand that there are lies that are at play that are seducing people. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola, whom I quote in the book, founder of the Jesuit order, defined sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Mm. And that's not like Christian self-help. He's writing that hundreds of years ago. And, you know, like he's not at all doing that. He's saying that the root of sin is the temptation to believe an illusion about reality, to believe some kind of a lie. This is Genesis 3. Like Genesis 3, however you read Genesis— is the paradigmatic temptation. It's like what all, it's like the the kind of archetype of what all temptation is. And what's the temptation? It's to believe a lie and it's a twofold lie. One that God's actually holding out on you, that he doesn't actually have your good. That he's not actually a God of love and you can't actually trust him. And two, that his definition of good and evil are incorrect and you, mm. you're better off to trust kind of the voice in your own head and your own heart. Yeah. And that's still thousands of years later, however many years later, that's the root of everything. Uh, the other night I heard, um, so I've been kind of, sometimes my time with God is early, early in the morning. Yes, you have children <laughs> and chickens now too. So. Apparently, yes. <laughs> Thank God we don't have a rooster. That would be obnoxious. But um, but I heard the other night, um, which brings life and peace. I just heard the last refrain of that 
and I'm like, okay, because I love how the Spirit will always remind yes. us of everything that Jesus ever yes. said, and I grew up, you know, uh, learning a lot of Bible verses. So I had to Google it, and of course, it's Romans 6, 8, yes. the, the, the mindset on the flesh yes. leads to death, the mind and the mindset on the Spirit leads mm. to life and peace. And yeah, I'm like, man, love that. everyone wants life and peace. Yes. Uh, you hear the last refrain of that, and you're like, wow, everyone wants ultimately life and peace. It doesn't yeah. matter whether you acknowledge God or not. We were made to to be image bearers of the gospel of yep, peace. absolutely. And so I was like, okay, let me unpack this flesh thing again. You know, I mean, you hear it all the time, but you're really wanting to unpack. And just a week prior, I had heard, which wage war against the soul? And I'm yeah. like, what? King James? Okay, I'm going to Google that again. And it's like, again, the the flesh, mm. um, the, Peter, the desires yeah. of the flesh wage war against the soul. And that is exactly what you're talking about here. So mm-hmm. would you unpack, I know you unpack it very well in the book, but just a snippet of these three enemies of the devil, the flesh, and and the world. Yeah. In in a summary statement of like these are the things that wage war against the soul. Yeah, yeah. So that's an ancient paradigm that I think has been lost in recent history, from that goes back arguably to the desert fathers and mothers in the third and the fourth century. These abbas and amas and kind of spiritual giants in the way of Jesus, and they developed what they based on their reading of the New Testament and the four Gospels, what they called the three enemies of the soul, which in their mind were almost like a counter-trinity. So it's like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were at war, and we are not comfortable with this, but there's like a warfare motif all through the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. A lot of scholars argue that the kingdom of God is a warfare motif, that it's the invasion of earth by heaven through Jesus' life and his community. It's not violent, it's nonviolent, but it's still war imagery. And they would say that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are bringing this kingdom, the result of which is life and peace, like governed by the peace. That's political language. That's kingdom language. It's the mind under the rule. It's governed by, it's under the rule of Jesus. Counter that is this kind of counter trinity that is bringing this kingdom of the exact opposite, death, you know, and chaos and all that comes with that. And they identified, based on their reading of the New Testament, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, yes, that's kind of the wireframe for my book. And I'm attempting to take this very ancient paradigm that most people have either never heard or they've heard it from like a fundamentalist preacher with a bullhorn, you know, and some sandwich board sign just screaming about ACDC and whatever rather than a thoughtful kind of approach. I'm trying to take this and kind of update it for people living in our kind of cultural thing. Well, it's such an important book, and I think so timely, of course, the way God works in these things, where I know, you know, you're you're boldly laying out truth, and you're trying to help people see the world through this lens of kingdom and a war that we're in. We're in this yeah. literal battle, lots of deception right now, Yeah, like epic deception. Yeah, How do we as believers see through that and then help all these other people who just have no idea that yes. this epic battle's going on yes. start to become aware of it, start to remove kind of the mist from their eyes and, yeah. and see clearly. And so I think this is going to be such a gift uh, to the church. And I love that Jesus' ministry was one of compassion, knowing that people were having these these this battle, right? That yeah. they, were, they were walking in that. And a lot of times the way I like to approach this is like, this is not condemnation that you're setting your mind on the flesh. This isn't, like you don't, you're not often aware that you're doing yes. it. It's like the and, default. Right, yes. right. It's it. It's just unless you are aware of it and yes. awake to it and engage and, and with And that's that. the great tragedy is, and if you're new to this kind of New Testament paradigm and listening, you know, Paul is so clear that our, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers. 
And what happens is if, if we set aside this idea of the demonic and demonic, you know, spiritual conflict, then we end up demonizing other people or entire groups of people based on their ethnicity or who they voted for or their nationality or political orientation or where they live or how they sound or their accent I mean, any number of things. And so the great myth is that this will lead to conflict. This is actually the way out of a lot of the conflicts that our culture is locked in and even have infiltrated the church. I love it. I love it. Jesus' final prayer for unity, right? Yeah. It's like, really? Yeah. We could catch and taste and see a glimpse yeah. of that. Uh, you know, M. Scott Peck, I don't know if you've ever read that book, The Road Less Traveled, but it's one of my favorites. And his opening line is, life is difficult. And it's, it's not a cynical book. And then he goes on just to say, if you expect life to be easy, you'll be a neurotic person because life is very hard. Right. But if you expect <laughs> life to be hard, most people think, you know, it's hard, but it's mostly great. Yeah. It's mostly good. <laughs> you know, it's a net positive. It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. And so I think, you know, what the gift of the Desert Fathers and Mothers and the writings of the New Testament and Jesus and Paul is they give us this paradigm that life is a kind of spiritual struggle, that there's a, there's a counter movement. We're not just trying to move forward into the image of God. Like we actually have opposition against us. If we don't realize that, if we're not aware of that, if we're not in tune with it, then life is just going to be so frustrating. Spiritual right. life is going to be so frustrating. If we realize it, then we fight back. It's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Like nobody wants that. But at the same time, life can still be deeply good and satisfying, mm. satisfying and beautiful. Well, John Mark, I hope everybody gets Live No Lies. But I want you to tell everybody about the new podcast so <laughs> series that you launched because we love sharing about these things oh, yeah. so our listeners have the chance to yes. just go deeper into this conversation. Share with us a little bit about what you're doing. Yep, it's very easy. I'm just doing a one-season podcast to go with the book, also called Live No Lies, where I'm just kind of interviewing some kind of leading Christian thinkers that I quote in the book. And they might get a passing quote or a paragraph in the book, but I'm just kind of doing a deep dive with them to yeah. kind of ask them questions, poke around their mind, learn from them. I just love to listen. So no, it, it's, it's great. And you do such a great job on all of your podcast series. So thank you again for all that you're doing to contribute to the church. And thanks for being with us today. My honor. Thanks for having me on. I could have gone on and on with John Mark. I know, and we kind of did. We, we turned did. the mics off. We should have kept them on, but obviously so much there, so rich. This is the one, one of those kind of podcasts I would just say, share it with your friends, family, pastor, people around you that are trying to understand what's going on right now and needing to see it differently, needing to step back 50 years or 50,000 feet in the air and like understand at a macro level what we're all walking through together and start to gain a sense of confidence in how God's at work. Yes, and we are so excited to kick off the 52 days to let go and live free. So join us October 1 through November 21 and get your free conversation guide at rebeccalines.com slash live free. Share it with your friends and let's go on this journey. Uh, let's see real transformation by Thanksgiving. I'm excited. Let's let go and live free.